special retirement edition, oh. retirement episode, episode 251 of Breaking Cave Fade with Bowdrin and Barry. Barry, uh, retirement news uh, abounds in the pro wrestling community, and you and I <laughs> will be discussing that for sure. Besides that, we are going to be talking about, oh, Barry, we're going to a very special day, October 21st. October 21st, a very special day every year. You know why, don't you, Barry? Oh, I do. It's someone's birthday. Well, I'm not going to mention any names. Right. But in this case, we're going to 1997, Mitsuhara Masawa versus Kenta Kobashi, and it is a dinger. You're going to really like it. We're going to be talking about that. Besides all that, we're going to be talking, as I mentioned, some uh, retirement news, uh, the match of the week. We're going to be doing a movie review on a movie that Barry Rose picked out. Oh, oh. I'm so giving of my co-host because, Barry, we are nothing if not what? We're givers. And in this case, it's me that's the giver. I'm letting Barry pick the movie of the week. Quirky little Robin Williams film from the mid-80s, Moscow on the Hudson. And we've got some people offering their thoughts and reviews on Moscow on the Hudson. Good stuff. But first thing we want to do before we get started, Barry, before we go to the match of the week, before we do any of that stuff, let's go to a special message regarding the CWF Legends Fan Fest coming up. When is it coming up, Barry? Coming up November. The fifth taking place in beautiful Louisville. Yeah, you, you, you were thinking for a second there. I could tell. I and was. we have we have a special message from our friends Frankie and Jana Seacrest. Lou, why don't you take us to that message from Frankie and Jana? Barry, we are always happy to be joined by the real star of the Seacrest family, Jana Seacrest. And maybe she has somebody with her. I don't know, Barry. But welcome to Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry. Thank you so much. I did bring Frankie with me. Well, you know, everyone's got to drag a little extra weight along with them. So, you know, but uh, so Barry and I uh, were talking and we want to put the word out about a, you know, another offer that you and Frankie uh, have for anyone thinking about coming to the CWF Legends Fan Fest. Uh, please, uh, if you could both explain uh, the extremely generous offer that you're making yet again. So just like we did for uh, June, uh, we're offering a hotel and so it's Friday to Sunday, check-in Friday, uh, uh, airfare to your from your uh, nearest airport down to Tampa. Uh, we also provide transportation from the airport up to the hotel. We are providing the uh, Ultra ticket. Is that right, Barry? The, the best ticket is the Ultra? That, that's the Ultra, correct. That's awesome. the Dave Penzer uh, ticket right there. <laughs> yeah, but, exactly. Hey, because if you're coming, you have to experience, uh, you know, the, the whole ship. Of uh, you know the cup of coffee, the uh, the dinner, and then the after party. So uh, and, and then we also uh, are giving fifty dollars a day. So that will be a total wow. of one hundred and fifty dollars of per diem that you could use either on food or you can buy gimmicks from Ben James and and the legends that are there. Frankie also did not mention that I am the chauffeur driver. Oh yes, you oh, are. You are correct. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, like the gifts never stop coming here. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's uh, it, it's like they line all this up and it's and again, it's it's it, this is a there's no catch. There's no strings. There's no you got to listen to a timeshare presentation for four fucking hours. There's none of that. This is strictly out of the goodness of this uh, this family's heart to help out the less fortunate, you know, and I, Jeff, we're friends with both Frankie and Janet, and I've heard the stories uh, of their benevolence, you know, in other directions as well, not even, you know, dealing with the brothership, et cetera. So this is so wonderful. Jana, while we've got you, tell 
everybody one last time how they can be a part of possibly being the bet, you know, being able to receive this. Sure. We have a link on the Facebook group on where they can go and just fill out. It's a quick Google form to probably take two minutes or so. Um, and Barry, like you said, there's no catch. We, Frankie and I just love the brothership and we loved the CWF uh, Legends Fan Fest. And we really want other people to have that same experience. So if you go on the Facebook group, you'll find the link to the Google form and just fill it out. And what are the, uh, I guess you could say, stipulations as far as what you're looking for? Uh, I know you you want people that have never been to the Fan Fest before. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, yeah. We, we would like that. I, I mean, I, I think eventually, probably after a couple, that that, that won't be, you know, a, a requirement that, you know, it'll be maybe the people who have never been will have a higher consideration. But, you know, because there, there might be, you know, someone that's got cancer and stage three and going through it and don't know how long they got, don't know if they'll make it to the next one and they need to go to one. You know, so we, we would bump those up ahead of someone that 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 has been. So uh, th- th- that's it, really. You know, fill out the form. Let us know why you should be considered. And then we're going to make a decision August 15th. So we want all the forms into us by August 8th. So we've got about three weeks uh, to get those. And so I hope that this reaches as many brothershippers as possible. And and look, if you submitted for the June Fan Fest and you weren't picked, then, then please do it again. We we had uh, a lot of uh, awesome people that, that submitted. And it's really hard to choose, you know, down to one people. And, you know, we, we picked two people last time. We're, we're going one this time. And once we raise enough money with help from the brothership, then we'll we'll try and bring a second person. Yeah, and with that too, if anyone is having trouble locating the forms or or getting in touch with Frankie or Jan in any way, you can contact Jeff or myself. We'll put you in touch with them so we can get this ball rolling. The truth is, look, you're less than a month away from making a decision. There are some, as we all talk about, there are some amazing people within the brothership. And at the same time, there's a lot of people that are silent, that are quiet. For whatever reason, we don't always know who they are. We encourage everyone listening, take advantage of this. This can be a game changer. I'm I'm so happy. We had Jason Ward. Thanks again to Frankie and Jana. We had Jason Ward at the last event. He couldn't have been any more complimentary with the exception of the fact that he doesn't like the big Lebowski, which will live in my heart forever. But to that, we That's, also that means he's excluded from ever being part. Yeah, of Yeah. Yeah. Well, he was there once and now we're done with Jason for that <laughs> whole Lebowski thing. Exactly. <laughs> But but with that, too, look, Shard Johnson, Russ Rollerson also first time at the last one. And you can see the impact that this has. I You know, to this day, with the Fan Fest being six weeks ago, Shard is still discussing it and still still actually talking about it. So uh, we really encourage you if you've had any hardship, whether it's financial, health related life. Look, life has been tough for all of us the last couple of years, without a doubt. This is the way to maybe make things just a tiny bit better. So uh, we're looking forward to seeing everybody. Jeff, November the 5th, Lutz, Florida, headlined by Magnum TA, Bill Apter. Also, Scott McGee, Robert Fuller will be there. And coming up and could be as soon as today when this episode drops, the revelation of our next name. Be there. Or is it a revelation or a reveal? I don't know. What's the difference? (laughs) (laughs) 
Barry obviously was an English major when he yeah. was in Actually, coincidentally, I was an English major, but <laughs> what the hell do I know, right? Well, listen, Frankie and Jenna, we certainly appreciate you coming on, giving us a little intel on how these people can uh, seek you out and be considered for this very exclusive perch. And uh, I'm just going to break kayfabe on a little something for the listenership. Have a good time on your cruise, you two. Oh, wow. <laughs> Thank you. We are very excited. Yeah, yeah. Much needed. Much needed. Barry, Frankie, and Jana, good people all around. Uh, I got to up that, and I got to say great people all around. And uh, whether, you know. In, How about if I said very good people, or, or do you still want to go great? Uh, I guess okay, we we'll go, go very good. Yeah, we could do both, Jeff. But they, they really are. These are two tremendous people. If you believe in karma, if you believe in the afterlife. I think we discuss you, karma uh, with I somebody think, later in the show. I think we do, but these are these are good people. Uh, the, you, they don't come any better. I I, I I'm hard pressed to say other than you, Jeff, that uh, there's anybody finer on this earth than Frankie and Jana. <laughs> well, uh, hold on, I'm a little <laughs> a little bit humbled there. I a little choked right. up there. Uh, besides all that, uh, we're going to be offering uh, Barry. I wanted to just say right on the uh, the top of the show here. Uh, our friends Chuck Campbell and Newton White, Mr. Coke Zero himself. I don't know if you saw Barry doing a road trip of baseball stadiums throughout the country. That's kind of a cool tour of the country, huh? Yeah, they're doing it. I think last I saw they were in Chicago, right? Yeah, they were in Chicago and they went to a White Sox game. Much better off a guy's going to Wrigley Field. That's a much better experience. That's all I'm going to say. So we wish those gentlemen safe travels. I do want to mention, Barry, <clears throat> an unfortunate anniversary for me coming up end of this month. It's going to be the first year that my dad is not going to be with us. Uh, so I just want to say uh, that uh, on that day, Barry, that uh, we'll be thinking of my dad and we're raising an adult beverage to his memory. Uh, so, and dad, we're thinking about you. And so Barry, right now, uh, let's uh, get past that little uh, somber moment. Let's talk about our match of the week. Mitsuhara Masawa versus Kenta Kobashi, October 21st, 1997. Barry, our match of the week. Ooh, it's been a hot tick since we... Drove down the King's Road, Barry, October 21st, 1997. Barry, ask me why October 21st is a, a great day. Oh, Jeff, why is October 21st such a great day? Well, despite what you might think, it's not because it's real close to your birthday. Ooh, spoiler alert. Ooh. There, but it is, in fact, my birthday. But on the 21st of October, 1997, Mitsuhara Misawa took on Kenta Kobashi. Right there, Barry, you're, you're saying to yourself, well, it's not like these guys are going to have a dud. Okay, yeah, exactly. These guys are pretty well known for having great matches. However, Barry, I will tell you that this match and the old observer got a four and a half stars. And it was voted by Tokyo Sports as the 1997 match of the year. So, Barry Rose, tell the folks listening, what did you think of this match? So if you are a fan of Japanese wrestling or a fan of this style of wrestling, as Jeff just said, there's no way this is going to be a dud. This is going to be a great match. It would be impossible for it not to be a great match. With that, and I think I've seen at least all of their matches that's available. I'm a huge Kobashi. I like Misawa, but I'm a huge Kobashi fan, as we've talked about. This, I believe, might be their weakest match. But again, their weakest match is still better than 99.9% of other wrestling matches. So it's, it doesn't it's like really saying it's not the best Flair Steamboat match ever. There you go. But, you know, compared to everything else, 
Exactly. exactly. And, and this is look that that seemed to be the common opinion as I was researching this online. I watched the match you doing the quality research. All right, I don't know fair. if it's quality, but I did do research. But uh, but yeah, but that there seems to be a common denominator from people that literally obsess over these types of matches that this is their weakest. But don't let that distract you or detract you. It's still an amazing match. Uh, this apparently their 11th ever singles match between the two. And I got to say, I really did love this match as well. There's a lot of reasons that I love this match. One of the things that I really liked is, is the finishes. Like when you get to your false finishes at the end, there are several that take place. And Japan was known for doing that before that became big in the U.S. Japan was really the innovator of doing that. But these finishes are they're done in a way it usually comes after a big suplex or something like that and that's really what actually makes this match for me is the amount of really tough either elbow smashes and look misawa and kabashi were both known uh for elbow smashes and chops and things like that but some of these suplexes and suplays and uh side suit they're they're just unbelievable to see it it's almost like a clinic as you're watching this so i i really like this match i loved when they got to the ending of this match kobashi at the end of this match jeff kobashi's basically done right like you see it this guy's been through a fucking war he is beat up he's hitting his chops still but it's not like he's like laying the chops in it's more like instinctual at this point you know it's like yeah, I, don't, I, I don't even know if he even knows where he was. He's been dropped on his head so many times. So he's laying in the chops. Masawa keeps basically shutting him down. Masawa's elbows, too. There's a story in this match. Masabo's, Masawa's elbows essentially aren't even working for him any, anymore. But he gets Kobashi, hooks both of the arms once again. It's Tiger Driver 91, 1, 2, 3. Masawa wins again. I would say, what did you say that they gave this match? Where did Meltzer give this match? He gave it four and a half stars, but Tokyo Sports uh, voted it as the match of the year. Yeah, it's and it's that's almost apples oranges right there between the two. Th- this is a solid four and a half to five star match. You know, I, I don't know what would not make this a five star match. That doesn't, you know, but at the same time, it's you know everybody's got an opinion, right? So highly recommended though. And again, this style of wrestling. As much as we admire it and as much as we talk about it, this is the uh, style that either wound up with uh, people being dead, dead, paralyzed, or just in living the rest of their lives in constant agony. This is a really, really distinctive and tough style of pro wrestling. You know, uh, you watch uh, these matches with Masawa and you see him dropped literally not on the shoulders uh, but he gets dropped on the back of his neck and yep. on his head. Yep. I, I mean, I counted like maybe six or seven suplexes where you literally are watching the match and you go, oh, my, oh, my God. Like, what are they doing? Because it looks so risky, you know, like like that they're putting themselves or they're putting their opponent in, in literal peril because and, you know, whether the guy said, yeah, go ahead and do that to me or or they're just doing it or what. But. I mean, and it's both guys that are getting dropped, you know, like in these maneuvers. And I mean, they look absolutely spectacular and the crowd's reacting like just incredibly. But we all know how Masawa ended. And like, as you watch this stuff and then you watch 
Kobashi chops and he chops to the back and the side of Misawa's neck. And you're going, oh man, that 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 wasn't helping, you know. Now, spoiler alert, I can tell you that uh according to what I read, two months after this, Kobashi ends up beating Misawa. So uh, you know, this uh this match may have been the uh, the last we saw of uh Misawa as the champion. I'll tell you what I liked about this. We we always talk about uh the crowds and the investments of the crowds. If you watch this match, first of all, Barry, uh, did you notice that the, at least the majority of the front row, it, it's people wearing like uh, dresses, uh, women oh, wearing yes, dresses yes. and suits. Like this is like this is not going out wearing a t-shirt, you know, a, a, or something like that. You dress formally by God because these matches were presented as you know legitimate sporting contests. This was not, hey, we're going there to watch a bunch of guys have fun in the ring. Uh, you know, these this is like going to a UFC or a pro boxing match or something like that, where there's a little bit of formality to it to the members of the audience, at least in the front row. So I mentioned the ladies. Uh, Barry, I don't know if you noticed this, but there's two ladies that are sitting in the front row, kind of to the right. And as the match progresses, not that they're sitting on their hands, but they're being very demure, uh, you know, really not reacting to anything. This is about a 30-minute match. And I'm telling you, like the last five minutes of the match, Watch the two ladies because they begin to lose their shit. And these aren't like two teenage girls that are going, you know, ooh, you know, or, or girls that would go to the uh, the Japanese women's matches. No, these are, you know, women that appear to be like maybe uh, early 30s kind of thing. And they are reacting the way that you would see a teenage guy react to these matches. Like they're popping for every big move, every spot they're popping for. And it would. did you notice the women, Barry? I, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it, just great stuff. As Barry said, Masawa wins with a Tiger Driver. Uh, it's ni- Tiger Driver 91. Is that what it's called? That's what it's called. I know it was yeah. Tiger Driver. I didn't know what the year yeah. was. Uh, but the funny thing is, is when you see the finish, and, and what he essentially does is he hits a powerbomb where he sits down with the powerbomb. And if you watch the other 29 minutes of the match, you kind of are sit there uh, and you're left thinking, Really? That, that that's what got in the pen? It, it wasn't one of the times he literally dropped the guy on his head. You know, it seems like a bit uh anticlimactic, uh, you know, it, it's easy for me to say. Uh, you know what I meant. But um, you know, it just doesn't seem like quite the killing effect that the uh the other holds had uh or the devastation that the other holds had. But uh, you know, so that was a, a minor issue. I will tell you, you know, you said that this was probably the least as I watched this match, the one complaint I had about the match, and I agree with you, it's it's a an incredible match, and holy crap, just watching the the suplexes and and the guys getting dropped on their heads is just amazing. But there's a little bit of a lack of ebb and flow to this match that I've seen with matches with Kobayashi or Kobashi and Kawada and Masawa. The, that threesome there. Uh, you know, there's usually and and you know, you can throw in uh, I'm not gonna mention Towie in that group, but like, you know, when, when Steve Williams or Terry Gordy or Stan Hansen is involved, those guys, there's usually like an ebb and a flow to the match, and they build to the finish, and the people are just losing their shit. And this kind of seemed like there was a little bit of stop and start to it. Did you notice that? Yeah, and I wonder I I wonder if that is why people were saying this would maybe be the weakest of the two matches. I wonder if that's the reason. No, and that's I think that's fair criticism. Uh, this was, uh, you know, again, 
I feel like if we tell people this is the least of their matches, people will not go out of their way to watch it. And I don't want to do that because, you know, this is I I tell you what, last week's show, we mentioned the the Jake Roberts match and how we thought Sean Pascoe and, and his students could learn from watching Jake's psychology. The students could learn from watching this match uh, on how to work a match stiff, but please, God, if you show them this match, John, tell them not to drop their opponents on the head like that because this is so dangerous. And, yeah, no, this wasn't something that they didn't know was going to come, but even if you know, you know, if, if uh, you know, Terry Gordy is working with Steve Williams and he says, hey, I'm going to drop you on the back of your head, just because Steve Williams knows it's coming doesn't mean it doesn't hurt, you know? And, you know, as you watch both of them, Masawa and Kobashi, and it's amazing, quite frankly, Barry, that Kobashi seems at least, you know, when you see pictures of him on social media, that he seems to be in relatively good health. Always smiling, right? Yeah, it's kind of amazing. You know, yeah. I mean, we've talked about Kawada, who like doesn't have the front teeth, and he looks like he's about forty years older than he actually is. And and Tawei, I've seen, and he looks like he's beat the shit. Uh, you know, and it's uh, with everything that these guys put their bodies through, it's really kind of amazing that Kobashi is uh, seemingly still uh, appears to be in good health. I don't know if he's had serious issues or not, uh, physically speaking. But yeah, I will post a link to this in our group, Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry. A really super ma- uh, super match. Again, four and a half stars by the Melts. Uh, Tokyo Sports voted it 1997's match of the year from October 21st, 1997. Barry Rose and I give this a big thumbs up. So, Barry, right off the top here, uh, gee, anything been in the news lately since we last recorded? Did anyone, I don't know, retire? Ooh, let's see. Daniel Ooh. Bryan's actually coming back to AEW. Yeah, I read it's that not, also. Yeah, yeah, it's not yeah, Daniel yeah. Bryan. Uh, I, I heard Brock almost retired the other night. Yeah, I, I, with Jonathan Gresham, uh, he didn't oh, retire yeah. as much That's as he right. quit. Uh, yeah. well, I don't know. Anything else going on? You haven't retired yet from Open Table. I'm retired, but that was a while ago. Uh, I don't know. Maybe Lou retired. Uh, anybody else? Uh, not necessarily that we uh, know personally, but anyone else we know, Barry, that may have well, retired suddenly yeah. on a Friday afternoon, a late news dump, as they call it. And you know how you retire, right? You go on Twitter and yeah, of you course, announce yeah, your yeah. retirement. That's what it's how you I'm do it. I'm surprised you didn't go on TikTok and do a little dance. <laughs> do a dance with it. Boy, that would have been worth its worth its weight in gold had that <laughs> happened. Could you imagine? Uh, but yeah, there was look, there was breaking news coming in. And this has been an investigation. People have waited for us to comment on this. Oh my God, that's you know the the inundation we both have received of people wanting our thoughts and opinions on Vince McMahon retiring. You know, and, been- and I'll tell the folks before before you go on, Barry. You know, I said, Barry, uh, should we have someone come on to join us to, to discuss this? Yes. And, and you know, I, I looked in my uh, my phone. Uh, uh, I was like, oh, who do I got? Oh, I got uh, a Triple H. I could call him. I had Stephanie. Uh, maybe Steve Austin or somebody. Uh, and I said, no. You know what? I'm just going to have me and Barry talk about it because that's what the people really want to hear. Let's be honest, too. We did reach out to, without naming names, we reached out to a couple of people that had prior uh, spent some time in the WWE. And uh, I, the response was very similar with both where people realize they're going to be treading lightly because there's, there's a lot more involved and you don't, they sure. don't want to come out and try. So I get it. Look at money and jobs, et cetera. Uh, it's much easier for us to sit on a couch and play armchair quarterback. But at the same time, if there's financials and tied into this, of course, they're going to be uh, a little conservative with their thoughts and their views. But with that, 
I got to tell you, before we really talk, this is what confuses me there. And, and a wrestler that both of us, and as a human being, not as a as a wrestler, too, but uh, somebody that had worked with Vince for years. And I'm not going to call him out because I like him. And uh, he was uh, really one of Vince's right hands for quite a few decades and came out and uh, I believe it was on Twitter and said something. And it was something like all you jabronis that are uh, celebrating Vince be, being gone, you know, you're, and I, I, I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember exactly, but it, it was, there was anger in this post and calling fans marks and jabronis from somebody who normally never does that. And it, it was coming off very protective of Vince. And even if you had, if you had worked for Vince for 30 years, whatever the time frame is, you're also very much aware of a lot of the shit that Vince has done, which is bad. And and with this, the information that we got today, the information that was has been published in the Wall Street Journal, this is not Dave Meltzer reporting or Wade Keller. So this is not a, a wrestling journalist. This these are this is the fucking Wall Street Journal. And this story is now being picked up by everybody. Vince has done some really, really bad things. And some of this is alleged. I'm not talking about the current stuff because apparently there's documentation to prove all of this. But if you go back with Vince 20 and 30 years, there is allegedly a lot of fucking skeletons in the closet. And to to really try to defend a guy that paid, uh, you know, how many millions of dollars, Jeff? What's the current total? Like, I don't even know anymore. For what? For for what he's done with the hush money, I guess. When oh, women uh, the latest harassment. I read this morning was uh, fourteen point uh, two million, I believe, unaccounted for, or that they just found. Uh, that uh, it's like, oh, uh, where did this money go? Uh, now, is that on top of the other what? I believe other- so. And and as I said to Barry, and then I'll let him continue. When you get the SEC, the Security Exchange Commission, involved in what you're doing. Yeah, this is taking a bad turn for Vince. I got to be honest with you. Go ahead, Barry. It has, but he's, you know, again, this is deserved. And look, love Vince, hate Vince, and, uh, you know, whatever your stance is on it, very hard to deny that this man has committed several crimes, allegedly committed several crimes. And it's just a, it's so odd to me that people will come out and try to defend him. And even his daughter, his daughter, and I believe it was on social media. Thank you, Vince, for all you've done for, you know, this is the same guy that has paid, you know, if your numbers are right. And what was the first amount? Was it like $12 million? So uh, yeah, something, I thought it was closer to 11, but go ahead. Okay. But let's say it's a cumulative total of $25 million in hush money of women that he's been uh, either sexually harassing or whatever the situations were. I mean, I'm just so, you know, and even his, I, I thought he, you know, look, I, I've been very critical of Vince on certain things. And when this whole thing started and he said he was stepping down, you watched him go on TV and he basically said, then, now and forever, I'll be here. And whatever the fuck it was, he made it about himself. This was the ego talking and made it about himself. And and even when he retired on Friday with that post that he put out on Twitter there was no, it's just at 77, I'm retiring. You're really not retiring, Vince. That's another lie, another non-truth coming from your mouth. So I, I personally, I hope he fucking gets everything he's got coming to him. 
And it's not because he destroyed wrestling. Like, you know, for a lot of people, fuck Vince, he killed the territories. Look, business is business, and I get it. But when you do a lot of illegal, immoral shit, as he is allegedly, and again, this is under investigation, this is a really bad look in his behavior, which is well-documented, says, this guy's a real fucking dick. He's a real fucking douchebag. So I, on a personal level, Again, I don't I don't even hold I, I this is Vince is a human being and the way that he acts. I, I hope he gets the max, whatever the max is. Oh, boy. Uh, Am I last, wrong? Am I no, wrong? No, no, no. I was just I'm right. collecting my thoughts because uh, <laughs> okay. you know, to, to quote someone we both know thoughts. I have them uh, and I yes. will share them. And, you know, speaking of that particular person, uh, Brian. Brian, I understand, uh, on a Jim Cornette experience, basically disagreed with Jim and said that when Vince came out there and was doing the, uh, you know, the whole going out there, you know, now and forever uh, in the past, whatever sure. that, yeah, what is that, that was Vince doing basically a farewell tour and Jimmy had disagreed with him, but, uh, you know, turns out Brian was right about that. Yeah. Now, you know, as I was sitting there thinking about what you and I could talk about this, how I could correlate this and the Vince McMahon story, and then I'll get into my personal thoughts about Vince. You know what name came into my mind? I started thinking, is Vince McMahon a lot like Michael Corleone? And let me tell you what I think, how I drew that comparison, Barry. What did Vince McMahon want? As, as much as he wanted to be a success in wrestling and, you know, for all his flaws, faults, alleged illegalities, he was unquestionably a success as a wrestling promoter. Will you give me that? And I like I like when we do this as well. A hundred percent the most successful wrestling promoter in the history of this business. OK, what was Vince not a success at? Anything else he tried, literally. OK, uh, the, the World Bodybuilding Federation the XFL, all these other things he tried, uh, boxing. Remember the Donnie Lalonde fight? Uh, you know, any other avenue that he tried, he failed at. And what happened was he would fail at those attempts outside of wrestling, and then he would go back to wrestling, and he would have success because that was what he knew and what he did. And it brought to mind Michael Corleone. And, you know, just when I thought I was out, they brought me back in or whatever the fucking line was from the Godfather. But so do you see my corollary? Do you think it's uh, one that potentially has merit? It does. The only thing I would say, I mean, I mean, again, if we're looking at what Vince has been alleged to have committed and I'll go back to the Jimmy snooker murder thing and, and all the allegations there. And again, these are allegations, right? What do we know? We don't suppositions. But, but- but even if if a small percentage of this is true, and what you know, all the cliches where there's smoke, there's fire, yada yada yada. But it, it's it, he's it, Michael Corleone. I never got the impression, and I, I I like the fact that we can talk Godfather and turn it into wrestling as well. <laughs> that to me is the win right there, right? But I uh, I I don't think he was purely. I don't think there he was evil. I don't think he, and I I think Vince is kind of evil. I think that Vince is a bad human being. I think he has done terrible things to his wife and his children in his behaviors and a lot of people that he's dealt with. Uh, and but again, a lot of this we, is done. Okay, let, let's take this even one step further. Okay. 
you know there had to be that, you know, Vince, much like Michael Corleone, uh, let's make Linda Kay. Don't ask me about my business, you know? And there had to be that moment where Linda was standing uh, at that door and one of Vince's cronies closed the door while they were fucking kissing the ring. You know that fucking happened, okay? And so, and then, you know, all this, you talk about how he's uh, he's damaged his children. No question about that. Uh, you know, yep. like whether they want to admit it or not. Uh, but yeah, I, I just started thinking about that. And the more I thought about that, and of course I started wondering who was Fredo, who, who was Fredo to Vince, you know, but Vince McMahon, and you know, as I was thinking about this, uh, I have to say our, our friend Howard Baum, uh, posted something on his social media page. Let me see if I can find it here where he was talking about all the things that he holds Vince responsible for. Uh, and, and I'm just going to borrow this from Howard because I thought he made some interesting points here. He said his biggest beef with Vince is the whole too good for wrestling thing. Wrestling equals sports minus entertainment. Wrestlers equals superstars. No kayfabe, no belts, no titles, disrespecting and changing legends gimmick. The rest is just opinion and what you find entertaining. And, you know, and I thought that was kind of interesting because to longtime wrestling fans, you know, the, the whole uh, Dory Funk Jr. becoming Hoss Funk. And, sure. you know, but he was the guy, let's be honest, who wanted to copyright guys. He wanted to create a gimmick name for people so that he could trademark it so that he could make all the fucking money off of it. Uh, you know, selling the dolls and whatever. And then, you know, like when uh, uh, Dory Funk would leave the Federation and go out there, he couldn't be Hoss Funk. I mean, not that he would want to be, but, right. you know, the fact that Hoss Funk was trademarked, you know, he could hold on to that so Dory Funk couldn't capitalize. I'm just using it as an example, okay? And, of course, naturally gimmicks that he created, The Undertaker, Brutus Beefcake, I'm just thinking of some right off the top of my head, you know, these were, you know, they couldn't go, uh, you know, go to the uh, the rival promotion and still be the Undertaker or still be Brutus Beefcake. They had to change or alter the gimmick. How many damn gimmicks did Ray Trailer have, you know, uh, when when he came in and uh, what was he uh, at the end? He was, uh, oh, fuck. What was he what, when he left the Federation and he went to the WW uh, or WCW? Do you remember? So he was big boss, man. And then he became, wasn't he Ray Trailer or no? No, but he he had some sort of like a police officer gimmick. Oh, it was uh, wasn't he, wasn't he a guardian angel? The boss, the, the boss. Okay. But that's what I'm saying. It was some very thank you, Lou. Uh, some variation of the big boss man thing, and that was all because Vince had trademarked it. And you know, was it an asshole move for him to do that? Yes, financially speaking, as a promoter, it makes sense, and you understand it why does. he did it. You know, yes. So you really can't shit on him for that. But, you know, as a wrestling promoter, he has pretty much the same moral code as a tow truck operator. You know, <laughs> they, they don't give a shit about you. All they're in there for is to make fucking money. And, you know, guys that would go there that gave a shit about how they performed in the ring, uh, what sort of, uh, you know, ability they had in the ring to have the uh, proverbial five-star match. If you Vince didn't give two shits about that. And I, I saw an interesting thing from, uh, I will not name the person, but a former WWF uh, superstar, if you will, who said, uh, you know, uh, basically, who gives a shit about work rate? How many tickets did Hulk Hogan sell? And uh, that was more important than work rate. And that's the mindset that Vince McMahon 
put into people's head. And so uh, a certain ethic of, of work rate and things like that, that maybe were important uh, back in the day when you and I were first, you know, being exposed to the wrestling business didn't become as quite, you know, as prevalent. That's why you had, you know, God, how many times did you look in the observer in the eighties, Barry, and see the results from a house show the WWF had somewhere random city. And it was just the drizzling shits, you know, like, Oh, this was a minus one star match. This was a dud. Uh, the best match on the card was one and a half stars, you know, because first of all, they were working at a, you know, breakneck pace. They were doing 40 shows in 30 days, some kind of, you know, insane schedule like that. So guess what? All of a sudden you're not going to go out there and fucking, uh, have the work rate of somebody that was a, you know, supreme talent, like a, uh, Brian Danielson or, or somebody like that. You don't give a shit because, Hey, guess what? I'm going to fucking be out of here in half an hour. Uh, after I go back to the dressing room, because guess what? I got to be in Tacoma tomorrow, you know? And that's what he put those guys through. Okay, I'm starting to rant here. It's good, though. It's good. Was, you you needed was, to rant. Was he the best promoter of all time as far as the no. amount of money that he made, as yes. far as uh, the income that he gave a large majority of these guys? Were there guys that he completely fucked over financially? Absolutely. absolutely. fucking lutely Were there guys whose uh, death he may have a degree of culpability in, in some manner or form. Allegedly, possibly, maybe, I don't know. But he was a successful promoter. Like I said, they have the moral, same moral code as the fucking tow truck driver on a, you know, on a Saturday night at 2 a.m. But now let's get to Vince, the human being. Yeah. Vince, apparently, here, here's a little clue bus for all of you that may not know this. Eh, he may not be a nice guy, okay? He has less moral code. He has basically the moral code of a pimp, you know? Where is my fucking money? And if you don't have my money, you better fucking go get my money. That's essentially what Vince, the human being, not the promoter. That's what Vince, the human being is. He has the moral code of a fucking pimp. Where is my fucking money, bitch? And that's all he cared about. And, you know, I sit there and think, and we've discussed this before, Barry, by all accounts, I've heard that Linda McMahon is a very nice person. Okay. Yep. Uh, I'm sure she's got some flaws in her game, but I'm just talking about things that I've heard from people that have met her or know her is that she's a very nice person. Now, that being said, how a very nice person stays married to Vince McMahon for that long? Uh, is it strictly, uh, I'm going to stay with him because, you know. Uh, he's uh, got tons of fucking money and I'm going to be able to uh, stay in a lifestyle that I've become accustomed to. Uh, who knows, you know, or maybe she loves him. I don't know, but he's, he's just, it's like that line at the end of the hangover when Ed Helms is confronting his fiance and she's like going, you know, where the fuck were you at? Why, why did you lie to me? And he goes, yeah, yeah. and he's just like trying to spit out the words on how he feels about her. And he finally says, you're just, you're not a nice person. And very uh, nicely, I will say that Vince McMahon is just, he's not a nice person. And as Barry said, this is where, you know, uh, all that karma that has built up against him is now uh, coming back at him. And I hate to say this about a fellow human being, but 
yeah, nothing he gets is too good. <laughs> you know, uh, no matter how badly he gets smacked in the ass, no matter how bad he is going to be forced to join this government's kiss my ass club, Vince McMahon will be puckering his fucking lips and attaching them to this fucking government's ass because he has reaped what he sowed and get ready to fucking pucker those lips because you're going to be kissing some fucking ass, Vince Bear. That'll be a lot of fun, too. And and Vince is uh, he is a worker uh, to the highest degree. He's also an extremely shrewd businessman. He appears to have no morals or ethics of any kind. I could see Vince, if this escalates, if there, uh, if he's brought up on charges, if there's a trial, I could see where Vince stops going to the gym, where Vince stops dyeing his hair, where Vince all of a sudden mysteriously starts having serious health issues as the trial approaches, and they wheel him in in a wheelchair as they've done with you know so many Harvey Weinstein, Ron Jeremy currently, Jimmy Snuka. Jimmy Snuka, which may have been legit in Snuka's case, though. I don't want that one. I don't want to joke about. But there's so many guys. Well, no, but I, I just mean in the sense that there were people that believed that he was working. Oh, yeah. I, I'm, which, not saying, actually, I'm not saying yeah. he wasn't legitimately uh, going through some dementia issues. He absolutely could have been. But oh, yeah. There yeah. was a certain amount of people that said, oh, he's fucking working the, uh, the courtroom here. And I, I don't think uh, I don't think Harvey Weinstein was working at all. <laughs> I think he was. I, let me take it back. I think he was working 100 percent because uh, but initially that's what a lot of these guys do. And again, you know, Harvey Weinstein uh, was brought up on multiple sexual assault counts uh, and then, of course, did everything he could to try to get out of it. Good news is I believe he's spending the rest of his life behind bars. But I, I think, Vince, I think this might be one that Jerry McDevitt cannot bully and intimidate someone where normally that's what he does. You know, McDevitt is a a well-known lawyer who is uh, essentially intimidated a lot of people. And I don't believe any of that intimidation is going to currently help Vince. And, uh, you know, this is going to be something to sit back and watch. And it's going to get worse. I think the beauty of it is I think there's going to be a lot more over the next six to 12 months that'll come out. You know, uh, as you were discussing, uh, you know, Harvey Weinstein and uh, Ron Jeremy and uh, the name popped into my head was uh, Bill Cosby. How how remarkably frail Bill Cosby uh, looked when he went into court. And, uh, you know, whether he's suffering from legitimate health situations or not. Uh, Yeah. And, you know, Vince, because giving credit where it's due, he has literally invested his entire life to his company, okay? Uh, well known as being a guy that uh, just eats, sleeps, breathes the WWE, okay? And now if he does not have that anymore, if it's taken away from him, truly, uh, not only will he suffer health issues, it reminds me, you know, how many times have we heard and the name that popped into my head was a uh, former coach of Alabama, Bear Bryant, who had given so much of his life to, uh, you know, football coaching and we were retired. He was dead within three months. He just dropped dead. And is that something that could eventually befall Vince? I mean, I'm not wishing it on it. I wouldn't wish that on anybody, but when you have something that is the, literally the focus of your life for so long, and now you walk away from it where normal people would just say, okay, I've earned it. I'm going to sit back uh, at the beach or I'm going to sit back and, you know, look outside my backyard and have a nice cup of coffee in the morning and relax a little bit. I've certainly earned it. 
he's not wired that way. And you're right. He's going to, you know, stop working out. His hair is going to go gray. And maybe, maybe uh, some of those chair shots and some of those bumps he took begin to take hold. And maybe you see, you know, some stuff uh, start to befall him that, yeah, I got to be honest, Barry, completely, you, you make a good point. And that would not surprise me at all. No, I, and I, I would imagine, and I, I think, in, you know, thinking about what you just said, so when I stated that, I, I, it, to me, it was, that was going to be Vince's defense. I'm a frail old man who's 78 years old now, 79. It's the Uncle Leo defense. The Uncle Leo defense. However, to your point, I wonder, if, is his psyche so wired into the fact that this is all he knows for the last 35, 40 years 24 hours a day, the stories are legendary. Seven days a week, 24 hours a day, Vince is always connected. He's always a part of this now that he is no longer a part of it. And I know initially, I think a lot of people were saying, well, Vince will still be in the ear of a lot of people. I don't think he will. I know that there's laws governing that, but I I think he legit has to step back now and can't have much communication. I don't know how all that works, but I, I think that could actually kill him. And, you know, you always hear these stories, right? People work their entire lives and they retire and then they die within six months because they don't feel worthwhile. They don't feel like they're useful any longer. So I, I think this is going to really be the story, not just of this year, but I think over the next couple of years, this is that big of a story. Remember the end of Godfather 3. Michael Corleone, I, I, I drew a comparison between Vince and Michael Corleone, is sitting in the backyard by himself in a chair, and the end just comes for him, and he's by himself. That's it. I have a feeling that when the end comes for Vince McMahon, he won't have his family around him. He won't have his wife that stood by him through all the stuff that happened to him. As you said, his, his children uh, have certainly had. Uh, conflicts with their father. I don't think this kid's going to be there either. I think Vince McMahon, when the time comes, is going to be sitting in that chair, whether it's on his porch, backyard, his condo, whatever, and he'll be by himself and the end will come. So Barry, I wanted to get your thoughts on something else that uh, has been in the news recently uh, online in the wrestling sphere. First time we've ever used the word wrestling sphere, by the way. Barry Rose, tell me what you think. Uh, our friend Ron Lemieux had posted that he's taken the die for $4.99, and he is watching the, and I'll use quotation marks, retirement match of Ric Flair at 73 years old. Barry Rose, will you be spending $4.99 to watch Ric Flair's retirement match? I will not. I will say if I, I I'll be in the car headed to Florida at that stage. However, If you if were I, home. If I was home and I did not have any other plans and nothing was going on, I would pay the five. I could care less, to be honest with you. At five bucks, I would absolutely do it. That I would do. So, yes. I will say that you, Barry Rose, uh, being the well-known philanthropist that you are, could hand me five dollars. And say, Jeff, here's five dollars. I want you to watch Ric Flair's retirement match. A uh, match and the uh, entire card, because I'm sure they have other matches. I, I believe. I would say no, politely decline. Uh, and then uh, after you took your five dollars back, I'd say, fuck no, 
No, no, no. I'm not going to fucking pay $5 to watch a 73-year-old man who was fucking coded a couple years ago have a match so that he could get one last little stroke of his ego. By the way, I don't believe this will be his final match. Terry Funk said the, that it was his retirement match. How many times now, Barry? Like you know, 17, something like that. Yeah, and we, we love Terry. But, uh, you know, I, I'm ashamed of the people that are involved in this and promoting this. This is a man who was at fucking death's door. Yeah, he definitely kicked out. God bless him for kicking out. But this is also a man that says, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get my shit together now. I'm going to stop doing all these things that led me to this. Mm, you think he's really stopped doing all those things? Mm, probably not. And, you know, all these people that are there, I, I, I've told people before, my biggest fear is that Ric Flair is going to die that night. And if it happens, I don't want to fucking be watching it. You know, I don't want someone to, to say, hey, did you see what happened? Ric Flair died in the ring. I don't want to, I don't want to be part of that. I don't want to see that. And I am legitimately concerned. Yes. He's fucking doing the Stairmaster and he's working out and he's doing, you know, he's doing moves with Jay lethal. Uh, I saw him training a month or so ago, you know? Yeah. I saw that. And they did the fucking angle where the idiot who had the camera goes, Ooh, ooh it looks like it. By the way, did you see that Barry? It looked like, I, it looked like it was a hard way. I hated that. Yeah. Oh my God. How fucking stupid was that? It, it really looks good to see two guys fucking putting the boots to a 73 year old man. Fuck it. How embarrassed should you be for this? <laughs> you, you should be fucking ashamed for your, and his son-in-law is the one that's fucking promoting this. I'm disgusted by the whole fucking thing, Barry. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, I think the sad part is Rick Flair especially over the last 10 to 15 years when so much of this has come to light. And Ric Flair was the guy that I don't want to say we idolized him, but we loved you know, We were smart marks back in the day, still are. But, you know, you go back to uh, the period where the Internet and the Observer and look, Ric Flair was the top guy. He was the guy that all fans loved. We all loved him. He was our guy. You know, we loved Arn Anderson. We loved Terry Gordy. There was a select few that were almost Teflon like. And so they were ways. our guys. They were our guys. We were absolutely we, we, we read. We wanted to know everything about Ric Flair and Terry Gordy because they were our guys. And this slow decline over the last few years. And I know I saw some photos, his uh, his wife and he split up. I guess several months back, uh, who was the former Fifi the maid, Wendy Barlow, I believe is her legit name. And she, you know, she was good. She stayed with Rick through his health issues. He almost died. There were reports coming out that he was not even expected to make it, made it, uh, obviously, you know, it, it found the strength to somehow come back. But I, I, I'm so concerned that first off, how much money is involved with this? If they're charging $5 online through a streaming device to be able to see this match, you're going to have to have a lot of buy rates, right? You're going to have to have a lot of buys on this for, uh, for anybody to make any money. I know that he wants to have one match, one final match. Again, he's had multiple matches, you know, since he retired last time, which you know, I guess that was Shawn Michaels, if I'm correct in the WWE, but you do bring up a good point. I, we don't want it. I, I don't want my last memory of Ric Flair is him basically turning blue on a mat and somebody giving him CPR or, or hooking him up to some sort of a medical device. So uh, that is a really, really good point. The rest of the card, which I saw uh, a lot of uh, quite a few guys that I don't really know who they are. 
I again, I don't, I don't know how much Flair is going to do. I, I that's the other aspect too. Is I, I don't know. I'm sure you're going to get signature spots, but this is not, in my opinion, this is not really going to be a match as so much as it's going to be an exhibition, Jeff. So I was talking to our old friend Dave Flaherty the other day, and and Dave, uh, of course, was a ultimate Ric Flair mark back in the day and, you know, had got to know him on a personal level and, and stuff. And, you know, I asked him, I said, what'd you think about this? Are you going to, you going to put out the money for this? And he said, you know, he says, I, I, I think I am. And it reminded me, and this is the conversation that I have told, geez, more than once on this show, Barry, back in the early part of the nineties, when Rick was starting to have the issues with the company and, you know, all the stuff with Jim Hurd, I said, you know, I said, you don't want Ric Flair at some point to be that guy that you suddenly woke up and you're like, wow, he's turned into an old guy. It, it happened to Ivan Koloff. It happened to Nick Bockwinkle. They were still great workers, but all of a sudden they were old guys who were great workers. You know, Dory Funk, hell, Dory Funk looked like he was old when he was like 28, but, uh, you know, True. And I, I used to kid Flaherty and I'd say, you know, Flair's going to turn into Freddie Blassie. He's going to be this guy that still has the fucking white blonde hair, but he's old. Guess what? Ric Flair has turned into Freddie Blassie. He's still got the white hair. He still does the woo, but he's old. And guess what? The, the one race that nobody, not even Ric Flair wins, is that race against Father Time. And Father Time is winning that race. And, you know, you, you mentioned that you don't want to, your last memory of Ric Flair to be, uh, you know, him, his face turning blue on the mat. You know, we've reviewed matches with Mitsuhawa Misawa uh, on this show before. And, you know, they're all great. We love the guy. But every time we talk about Mitsuhawa Misawa, the one thing we always have to mention is, yeah, Misawa was the guy that died in the ring. Yep. And, you know, uh, I profoundly hope that that is not what happens uh, in this match. Uh, if you are so inclined to watch this match uh, and you, uh, you know, put comments in our group about it or, or on your own Facebook page, you know, God bless you. But for me, it's a, it's a hard pass. So Barry, you recommended a really fun movie to me. Uh, we actually recommended a movie to each other and we'll be reviewing mine at another date. But you told me about the Robin Williams film, Moscow on the Hudson. Why don't you tell the folks about that? Yeah, it's a, you know, so this is such a, uh, a sweet little movie. And I first saw this, Jeff, 1984, I, I had been in New York for, I think for a couple of months and, uh, I didn't know much about this film, and I was a fan of Robin Williams at this stage. Uh, a lot of that had to do with The World According to Garp, which was really one of my favorite movies back in the day, and I still like it. But uh, this movie came out. I didn't know much about it, didn't understand. I didn't read any reviews, and I plopped into the theater to watch it. And I remember coming out of the theater going, that was a really good movie. It was a, a different type of storyline. Is it a comedy? Is it a drama? Is it action? Which it's definitely not. It's it's not. It, it's so hard to pinpoint exactly what this movie was. But what this movie offers, first off, is maybe, in my opinion, the best performance of Robin Williams' entire career. And and that's, a, you know, when you stop and think about his body of work and, yeah, there were some dogs in there as well. But this is a really, really sweet little movie. Uh, Robin Williams essentially plays a Russian. Uh, he's Vladimir Ivanov, and he comes over to the U.S. 
with the circus. He's a musician with this Russian touring circus and comes over and winds up defecting in Bloomingdale's of all places, which makes sense. It's New York City. Why not Bloomingdale's defects? And then that, which is essentially the first half of the movie. And the second half of the movie is what life is like for him in the coming days, weeks and months as he's living in New York. And, you know, freedom, you know, he finds love which is great, but he also has struggles, you know, it's, uh, there's some things happen and he definitely struggles, but this movie is, it's hard to pinpoint exactly what I love about this movie. And I would say, I think partly the direction of the film, this film is not over the top and easily, easily could have been over the top. It could have been a, a slapstick comedy. And, and I remember, uh, somebody, uh, somebody who actually wrote a review, Brandon New, messaged me and said, you know, I went into it and I thought it was going to be more like coming to America. And I got to tell you, I'm so happy that it wasn't because this movie, above all else, has heart. Like this is the kind of movie you watch and you when it's over, you go, wow, that really had heart. It's got a great cast too. Robin Williams, again, I think it's his best role. You've got Maria Conchita Alonso. Never became a giant star in this country. I believe this is her first movie. But she's great. She does a great job. And Cleavon Derricks, a guy who never became a big star, I think his biggest role, he was on a TV show 10 or 15 years ago with Jerry McConnell, Jerry O'Donnell, Jerry, I don't know, the one who's married to uh, Rebecca Romaine, Jerry O'Connell. Stand by a, me guy. Yes, exactly. So she's yeah. he, he's uh, Cleavon Derricks was on a TV show. I think it was called Sliders. And uh, but he's just not a guy that became. But he's great in this role. Alejandro Ray plays the Cuban immigration lawyer, which I think is great. And here's the other cool thing about this. And I, and I, Robin Williams speaks Russian and apparently uh, had to learn Russian for this role and does a really good job. Like he's really believable. He, he learned Russian. to speak conversational Russian. It's like absolutely fucking amazing. It is. It's. I mean, how, do, how the fuck do you do that? Like, it's amazing. But he pulls it off because the people he's dealing with and interacting with are legitimate Russians that are speaking Russian to him. And Ilya Baskin is a guy also never made it big, but was in a lot of movies that called for a Russian in this country. Uh, he plays a clown. And then Yakov Smirnoff who might be one of the more famous Russian comedians or, or celebrities. Uh, he's in this movie in a very small role as well. But Robin Williams speaking Russian, and again, I don't know Russian, but it really appears to be flawless, like when he's having these conversations where, and this will be the criticism, because look, there's got to be a criticism. Where does Robin Williams not really shine when he pretends to play the saxophone? And I don't know if, if you caught any of that, because I certainly did, but there's a couple of scenes. So, again, he's a musician. He plays the saxophone. And when he defects and, and is over in this country, there is a scene where he is uh, playing saxophone, I think, with a famous a famous saxophonist. That's a word, Jeff? Saxophonist? First time ever used on this show, Barry. All right. And I think the guy's name was Wild Bill Hawthorne, if I'm correct. And they show Wild Bill and he's you can tell he's really playing the saxophone and they focus on Robin Williams, who legitimately is doesn't look like he's doing anything other than having the saxophone, the reed in his mouth. 
I don't see him doing anything else. And then there's a scene later in the movie where he's supposed to be playing the saxophone. And for 30 seconds, they focus on what's essentially head neck up. And he's got the saxophone in his mouth or whatever the mouthpiece of the saxophone. But like there's no difference with his cheeks or his lips like he's just standing there. That looks pretty bad. But again, I give him a lot of credit from the Russian standpoint. This movie really is, uh, I think, first off, it's a great look at New York in the early to mid 80s. I think this would have been filmed in 83. And some of the dialogue, this was a Paul Mazursky film, the late Paul Mazursky. And a lot of his movies were were very similar in some ways as far as the story. Like there's no heavy handed ending here. You know, you're not going to get hit over the head with the ending here. In some ways, this almost seems like it was a stage play adapted. And I don't want to scare people away when I say that. But there are similarities of what could have been a stage play adapted for the screen. The highlight, without a doubt, it's Robin Williams. And there is a scene, which I know you're going to talk about, with Maria Kachita Alonso and Robin Williams in a bathtub, Jeff. And I got to say, that is, you know what scene I'm talking about? Oh, yes, I'm familiar with that. Yeah. So I'll let you discuss that when you talk about your review. But there's a lot of touch. Well, my review is not going to, you know, focus on uh, Maria Conchita Alonso's boobs, if that's what you're referring okay. uh, to. Although they're they're very nice. Uh, you and know, what did he call them? Your dinner rolls or something? He had a, <laughs> he had a nickname for them. But in essence, I mean, you know, should, do you want to talk about that or should I talk no, go, about go ahead. that? Uh, discuss the, uh, so, uh, the, so the scene in a bathtub. Let's just say that. They're in a bathtub and it's a very sweet scene as well. And Robin's a hairy man. I'll just say that. Robin is really hairy. M- Maria does not appear and he is leaning back she's between his legs lying on face up not face down but lying on his stomach and he is essentially rubbing her breasts and her nipples during during what appears to be a three-minute scene I, I think we've got a lot of people that are going to be watching this movie it's going to be the <laughs> highest rated movie on hbo max in a long time now and but it made me wonder because it he he's not pretending to to squeeze and rub her nipples. He is rubbing her nipples. So I, I was curious, was he married at this point? Was she married at this point? And I'm assuming the rules for movies are much different now because it it and then I, I Googled this. I'm like, did Robin Williams have an affair with Maria Cachito Alonso on this movie? They are a very convincing couple. Would you agree? There oh, yeah, no. There, it. It really the romance is, is very sweet. I, I will it say is. that it is, and it's not. Other than this scene, it's not like a uh, a sexual type of thing. And even this, even though that is sexual, he's not doing it like overtly and like you know drooling out of his mouth. He's doing it more of somebody that would love somebody. That which is the difference. Uh, but it's he's really, not doing it like you and I would be doing it. Is what no, you're we'd be like a couple of fucking animals, like a couple of fourteen year olds seeing breasts for the first time, we'd be squeezing them and doing all this. He's not, he's, this is acting. I mean, my God, because he really does uh, such a great job. Uh, I, I love this movie. I I think a lot of the scenes in that took place in Russia, and I'm assuming that they really did because it really does look like Russia. There are some scenes between he and his grandfather. And again, there's, there's a five-minute conversation between Robin Williams and this Russian actor playing his grandfather entirely in Russian, where they're subtitling at the bottom. 
super impressive. Uh, I, I know that I was critical about Robin Williams uh, at one point going back several years. And I got to tell you, this this movie is kind of it caused me to rethink that just a little bit. So a couple things uh, before I go on with my uh, my thoughts on the movie. Maria Conchita Alonso uh, was wow. in uh, the Nick Nolte movie Extreme Measures, which is an excellent film where he plays a Texas Ranger. Uh, she was in The Running Man with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yes. So she was getting lots of uh, work in the A's. She was in Predator 2, uh, a lesser Predator movie, but still she was in a Predator movie. So, uh, yeah, she was uh, mid-80s on. She, uh, she was in some good stuff. So I have to tell you, when I first started watching the movie, uh, on HBO Max, for whatever, the first 10, 15 minutes of the movie that, as you said, was entirely in Russian, My mine was not subtitled. The, the Russian was not subtitled. And I knew at some oh. point he was going to New York because it's called, hello, Moscow on the Hudson. Right. So I knew at some point he was going to New York, but I was like, okay, let me get in. It was more a case of you kind of knew what was being said and what was being talked about, you know. Uh, and when they would start talking in English for brief periods of time, and his friend was saying, you know, when we go to when we go to New York, I'm going to defect. You know, I, I've made the decision because right. I'm a bird <laughs> that uh, whose wings are clipped or who can't I can't fly because of you know what they're doing here and the way that you know I'm an artist and they're just making me feel so uh, you know, imprisoned by the way they treat the people here. Uh, you know, that's not said, but you get it. You know, you. You get and think about it. This was uh, this was Russia during the late '80s or mid to late '80s, so you knew what was going on. So as I started watching this, I was like, okay, okay, okay. And then like the you know we get to the where he's in New York and he defects, and uh, you know there's some amusing things, uh, you know. And uh, I, I will tell you the one moment in the movie that I laughed out loud is when he meets. I believe her family at some point in the movie, uh, <laughs> there's an older yes. man that says, this is my wife and this is yes. my mother. And Robin Williams goes over and says, hello, mama. And the guy goes, that's my wife. <laughs> it yes. was a very funny scene. Um, yes. But for the most part, about halfway through, I felt like I was slightly disappointed. And when I say slightly disappointed, I don't mean that I didn't like the movie, but I just was like, yeah, this is a good movie. It's kind of cute. But I'm not really feeling it a hell of a lot. And I'm going to, I feel like I'm going to have a big disagreement with Barry here. And then the last like 30 minutes of the movie happened. Hmm. And I felt like, yeah, you know, that scene in Dumb and Dumber. Hey, you've gone out and totally redeemed yourself. And there is a scene uh, where one of the characters is going and being sworn in as a citizen. And they're taking the oath of citizenship. And as they do that, the camera pans over all the faces in the room. It's not focusing on just one face. And you see all the different ethnicities that are being represented, people from all these different countries that are being sworn in as citizens. And you see the process and the emotion on their face that, you know, this thing that they've had to work for has finally come true and the pride on their face when the judge says you are now citizens of the United States. And, you know, I, I watched that and I went, wow, that was a really effective scene. I really thought that scene was well done. And then as the movie progresses, you know, Barry said there's no slam bang ending, but there was something that happened at some point where you think, 
wow, you're you're going to be a little downbeat here uh, because he's really going to be unhappy at the end of the movie. But that doesn't necessarily happen. Uh, there's something else happens, and I don't want to spoil it, that leads you knowing that it's not going to be uh, uh, an unhappy ending, uh, you know, that things that he hopes for do come true uh, when at some point you don't think they will. And so in that case, uh, this Barry's right, the very well-made movie, Barry. And, uh, you know, uh, Paul Mazursky, uh, you know, a legendary uh, screenwriter and, and, and filmmaker. He's done such great things. The cast, as you said, I, I don't recall ever seeing uh, Cleavant Derricks, but he was very effective as, like, literally Robin Williams' first f- uh, friend that he makes in the United States, who's a, a security guard. When he, de- he and it's a great scene when he defects, uh, you know, in uh, in Bloomingdale's, and uh, the uh, the KGB guys try to uh, come grab him, and he's like, "No, no, yeah, I'm security here in Bloomingdale's. You're not getting this guy <laughs> exactly. while he's in my custody." And it, it's a great scene. So uh, I would recommend this, it. This movie is on HBO Max for those of you that have it. It's something that uh, I would recommend uh, seeking out, uh, checking out, because I think it would be worth it. So, Barry, let's go to our reviews from our guest reviewers. So, by the way, I figured out who the the one review was. It was from our old friend Dan Farron. Dan, you did not put your name at the end of the review, my man. So, uh, Dan Farron reviews Moscow on the Hudson and says, I originally saw Moscow on the Hudson when it was released in 1984. It still holds up with one or two small exceptions that date the film. I saw Robin Williams in comedy clubs prior to Mork and Mindy. He was such a commanding force on stage. It is un- it is fortunate he was being led here by a strong director like Paul Mazursky. Williams sometimes could overpower a script. Here he does a nice job as playing a Russian musician, playing for the Moscow Circus who defects while on tour in New York City. He quickly discovers the American dream is a little more difficult than he was led to believe. He gets strong support from Maria Conchita Alonso in her film debut and in great cast. It is a comedy in the sense of situations and character, not so much boffo laughs. My only complaint is the last half hour could be a little tighter and could could lose maybe 15 minutes, but I think it's definitely work, worth a look. Barry, I believe you have Brandon News uh, review. And that's interesting, too, though, because you're you're praising the film on the last 30 minutes and he's thinking it could be tighter. I, I'm the opposite. I, I'm more with you. No offense, Dan. I'm more with you. The only thing I would have said is the movie is literally a 50 50 split between Russia and New York. I would have liked the defection to happen maybe 15 minutes earlier. Uh, no, that's fair. That. Yeah, yeah. Other than that, no, I, I I, think more time in New York. Anyways, I have Brandon News Review. The 1984 film Moscow on the Hudson completely defied all of my expectations. It isn't a true comedy, nor a powerful drama about the Cold War. At its essence, this is a simplistic film about ordinary people. We get to see the world through the eyes of others outside of our own little bubbles. The movie ahead of it, the movie is ahead of its time. It's a celebration of diversity in the American dream. While highlighting our vast differences, the focus is on commonality, our desire to live freely, and the opportunity to better our lives during these very polarizing times. This movie is a reality check for our perspectives. Every American should watch watch this film. I like that. As right now, the challenge has been thrown by Brandon and myself and Jeff. Every American should be watching this film. It's a pleasant reminder that our differences aren't as significant as our similarities. All right. My uh, my last review is from Daniel Williams. I think it was Daniel's first review with us. Oh. 
So thank you, Daniel. Uh, he says, while familiar with many of Robin Williams' works, I had not heard of this title before being given it for the review. As it was made before I was born, you just got to throw that in our face, don't you, Daniel? <laughs> Prick. It was an interesting step into the early 1980s. Robin Williams plays a Soviet defector named Vladimir uh, in another role where he finds himself an outcast trying to fit into a new situation. The movie starts out setting the plot of his friend Anatoly looking to defect from the circus, but a great twist happens when it turns out that Anatoly chickens out and Vladimir does it himself. Then we get to follow Vladimir through the hubbub of his defection and adjusting to living in New York City. We also get to see his budding relationship with Lucia, uh, or is it Lucia or Lucia? Lucia, I'm sorry. And his friendship with Lionel and his family who initially take him in. Watching the movie, it was a slow-moving roller coaster. The initial climb was long, but once Vladimir defected, it was delightful and deeply emotional seeing all the swings in his life. Robin Williams plays the character perfectly, as his range has always allowed for many different feelings to be betrayed back to back. The scene towards the end in the diner was poignant and heartwarming. I heartily endorse the brothership checking this one out. It's quirky, as Bowdrin pointed out when I took the assignment, but it's definitely worth the time. Uh, thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Brandon. And thank you, Dan. I will mention, Barry, we didn't talk about the scene in the diner. Uh, great scene in the diner where Robin Williams uh, has been mugged. He's extremely frustrated. He's talking with his lawyer. And he's basically bitching about the fact that, you know, America is not what I thought it was going to be. And I feel really let down. And lo and behold, sitting right across from him in the diner is another Russian immigrant. That's right. And, and the Russian immigrant begins to remind him of why this is a great country. Uh, and they begin they begin reading passages. Uh, shit, I completely threw it. Where is it from the the constitution or from maybe the yes. citizenship. Yes. And, you know, and as he begins to read it, there's another guy who's a Chinese guy, by the way, uh, a Chinese guy that was in uh, one of the lethal weapon movies, by That's the way. That's right. I recognized. Yeah. yeah. And he begins to, uh, he takes the the lead and then he takes the next line. And then there's a, a woman that's working there and she takes the next line. And it's a really thought provoking scene. Again, as one of the reviewers says uh, about you know, what it means, uh, this American way of life that, you know, so many have fought and died for and, you know, how becoming a citizen means so much, uh, to so many people. And it's, a, it means so much differently to so many different people. So, uh, I thought that was a very well do done you, scene, Barry. Do you know who the guy in your right too? And I, that is a great scene. Do you know who the big, that guy was gigantic, by the way, wasn't he? The big Russian guy in the yeah. diner. And, and Robin Williams kind of gets in, I would say get in his face, but kind of gets in his chest because the guy is literally a foot taller. Do you have any idea who that guy was? No. So that guy was, I've only seen him in one other movie. It was Trading Places. And if you remember when Dan Aykroyd's been arrested and his fiance has to go uh, bail him out of jail, she's sitting there and a guy looks over and goes, is that your purse? That's a nice purse. Do you remember that scene or yeah, though? Yeah, that's the guy. Yeah, that's him. That's funny. Yeah, yeah, and so the the uh, the Chinese guy that we were talking about in Lethal Weapon Four, uh, where they're uh, they're battling the Chinese triad. He is the character that Mel Gibson and Danny Glover and Joe uh, uh, Joe Pesci uh, put in the dentist chair, and they start giving him the laughing gas. And that's a very, very funny scene. So that guy's in the, has a very small part uh, in this movie, too. So, yeah, Moscow on the Hudson, available on HBO Max. Perry and I 
and our viewers highly recommend that you check out this quirky little gym. Barry, now we have rounded the corner. We're heading for home. Time to wrap up another episode of Breaking Cafe with Bowdrin and Barry, the three best friends you didn't know you had right here on the old Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. That's who we are a part of. Barry, you about ready to go home? I can't wait to come back for next week's episode, though, Jeff. It seems like it's just going to be tomorrow, but that's another story uh, as Barry gets ready to do a little traveling of the old subcontinent. So I will say uh, thank you so much for listening. Barry, we had a fun episode talking a little Vince McMahon retirement news. That's always good. Our our match of the week, a great one. Always great to see Misawa and Kobashi and a match. Uh, good stuff. I'm out of breath. Are you ready to take it home? I guess that's a yes. <laughs> Oh, that's a yes. I, I, yeah. I thought maybe that was a rhetorical, are you ready to take it home? Yeah, I'm ready to take it home, Jeff. Okay, fuck it. Take it home. Buddy. <laughs>